Welcome to Binge-topia. We hope you enjoy your stay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Binge-topia. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Julia Hava. I'm Eliza McClam. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash binge-topia, where you can get our bonus apps, which we just did a bonus app on literally every pop culture thing that's happened in the past week. So many things were happening. So many things were happening. If you want to know about Tristan and Chloe, if you want to know about Elon Musk's father and his children with his stepdaughter hunter biden hunter biden crack smoking what else did we talk about we talked about oh um leah michelle beanie feldstein leah michelle Michelle beanie feldstein we talked about uh doja cat and noah schnapp beef we actually didn't did we not we saved that for the live stream oh but if you're a patron and you come to our live streams then you heard about that wow Wow. The, we just covered so much it honestly can't yeah we just can't even yeah. get into it but if you want to hear that visit us there as everybody knows our merch website is not working and we are very sorry we're re we're redoing the whole thing we're girl bossing guys we emailed our accountant back we emailed <laughs> our accountant back but if you have placed an order you should have been refunded by now by this point that that you're listening to but if you haven't been refunded email us and yes, then we will please sort do. it out we shall yeah um also we haven't said in a while but please leave us a nice review on yeah iTunes. leave us a little review we haven't said that yeah and while. also if there's something that we say in the podcast that you don't like you can email us about it you don't have to put it yeah, you really don't have to put review. it in a review <laughs> somebody was like i loved this podcast like i was obsessed with the podcast but like the way julia told the uber story was like really annoying i'm sorry <laughs> that like i one got star. i'm sorry that i got upset that like i had just gotten back from a long haul flight in which i was severely depressed and then my uber driver immediately locked all my belongings in his car like we're not saying that the uber driver should be like <laughs> arrested <laughs> no he should be arrested it was an inconvenience for me and sure. uber driver yeah honestly we both shared in that inconvenience together yeah yeah um but yeah people often do sometimes just leave a review that's like eliza said this one thing <laughs> that i didn't agree with or julia said this one thing i didn't agree with and it's like you can yeah you can just email us or you can just get over it right it's just so funny when people are like i used to love this podcast and then there was a 30 second segment where they said something kind of annoying and now i hate you no i actually <laughs> hate the podcast more than anything what's the title of the review that's hurt you the most oh god <laughs> i don't know it was pretty rude when like i made that episode about like the grief of going through my breakup and like we had posted it before the shooting happened yeah. and then somebody was like julia has the ability to make everything about herself like the audacity of her to talk about her breakup when like people are dying and it just like was not like that was not it's like girl i don't know if you know how podcasts work but they don't they are not recorded minutes before <laughs> minutes upload. before upload yeah. yeah we are last minute but not that last minute yeah. and also just like i don't i just love i and i also love when people are like keep it to yourself don't say it on the podcast it's like it's our podcast that's what we we talk about ourselves and our lives on the podcast like, that's what turn it's it for. off girl if you don't like that's the other thing i feel like people don't realize they really can if they don't like us they can turn it off they can what's the review that's hurt you the most stay for julia tolerate eliza oh, wow that's Ooh, so rude that one really got me yeah we've had some pretty rude reviews but don't. it's okay because honestly overwhelmingly like i've actually of course we're gonna like drinks it now i feel but yeah i've never seen a podcast have 
more positive reviews than negative and maybe it's just because like or not more positive reviews than negative but like every time I go to see like another podcast I always check their reviews yeah and people are a lot meaner to other people online like we yeah. get a really really good and deal. we do get it balanced out where like people leave a hate comment to you and then they leave a hate comment <laughs> to me and then they like leave a couple more to one of us and then they right. like balance it out like yeah I'm glad that there's not like some secret coup against one of us I know um, among the listeners because that would really suck that would really suck I feel like we're jinxing ourselves by talking about all this <laughs> guys we are very sensitive do not be mean to us <laughs> podcasters have feelings too yeah if you like think that the quality of the podcast is bad and you like wish we would do better research or whatever like that's one thing but like if we say something that slightly annoys you like a one-star review for real a one star one star. when you used to be a stan yeah. when you love the podcast <laughs> this was enough to convert you over wow yeah it's it's pretty wild just like let me just say this not that like influencers or like social media people need your sympathy but like do imagine if there was a, a way for you to see everything that anyone ever thought about you yeah. like and you could just go to it at any time and like people were like saying that they hate you like it's not a positive vibe right it's not a positive vibe but at the end of the day we have a really cool job and we we're do. really grateful and it's not like we have a legion of haters like we really do feel like so supported in the community and we love you guys. i don't even know how like kim kardashian or, like those people like you have to live in a reality where like you just don't look at anything that I anyone know. says about well, you. Well, you don't look at things as much as I do. I mean, I look at things, but like I've been depressed lately, so I'm not trying to make <laughs> it worse, you know? Yeah, that's really fair. I like can't stop myself. It's like compulsive. Yeah, I, I'll i look at it like once in a while or whatever, but it's just like, I don't know. I just can't, you can't be taking in everyone's opinions that much. It's true. I, I like to read our patrons comments. Yeah. Well, especially when patrons leave like feedback, like critical feedback, like yeah. I listen to you guys. Cause like you say it in a way that is like constructive Yeah. and not just like, I mean, there's some rude patrons, but most of them are nice. <laughs> most of them are nice. Most of them are nice. If they're, if they're paying enough money to like listen to us, it's not, you're not paying it just because you like think we're annoying. Although we have gotten this. some like hate comments that are like, okay, cool. I mean, I guess you're paying to listen to this. So right. like you can leave your hate comments that's totally <laughs> fine um i went to a meditation class yesterday how was it was really good i meditated for 30 straight minutes wow like with very little guidance and like it was just interesting because meditation is just like i feel like first of all this is like pertinent because we're doing a wellness episode today but like meditation is people like i think use it and i have in the past tried to use it as a way to like feel better like yeah. get rid of your feelings and it's really just like it's really just a practice of observing your mind and just checking in and like seeing where your mind is and observing yeah. it non-judgmentally every day and like in doing that you learn to be less judgmental of your thoughts and your feelings but it's not like doing the meditation like makes you feel better right you know yeah but like the ability to distance yourself in some capacity from your thoughts and feelings enables you to just be more connected to the world right and like tap into that like third person like observer totally. type view versus like this is me and like all of these things are attached to me you should come with me i think I you would, would really to. like it it's very like buddhist centered yeah and which what i was really the vibe? like it. you walked in and then what there were like i'm doing this like small meditation group of like people in their 20s and 30s so it was like seven people who were like young adults mm -hmm. and we just like sat and I never meditated with other people, which I really liked because oftentimes I'll just be like looking like I'm like, I want to look at my phone and yeah. see how much longer this is. So you kind of are like held accountable by the other people. There's no like Wi-Fi there. So you can't like yeah. get any service. And then like they do talk about it from like a Buddhist framework, which I really like because I'm very interested in Buddhism. And I think it's important to like contextualize the practice yeah. within, you know, the culture that it comes from. And we just talk about like 
what's difficult about meditating, what's, what works for you in your practice and what doesn't. And like, I don't know, the, the teacher who's been practicing for like 17 years, which I'm just like, imagine practicing meditation for 17 years. Like yeah, my that's brain crazy. would be so enlightened. Right. It would be so Huge. enlightened. But she was just saying that like, there's no such thing as like a bad meditation mm. because like any time you take to like check in with your brain, even if the whole time your thoughts are racing, like I feel like we think that we're failing at meditation if we're still thinking, yeah. which is not the goal of meditation. The goal of meditation is to just observe your brain like the weather and like, okay, is it stormy today? Is it cloudy today? Is it sunny? Like we're not judging when we go outside. Like why is the weather like that? I mean, maybe sometimes we are, but like <laughs> we don't take it personally, you know, right. it's kind of more of an observation of like, oh, today it's cloudy today. It's rainy. And it's not like, an inherently bad day depending on like what the weather right. is obviously it makes us feel a certain type of way but that's like the goal of meditation is to just like be there with your mind and she was just like the only meditation is the one that you like the only bad meditation is the one that you don't do you know mm. um but it really is something that like you have to practice it's like something yeah. that you have to really like it's a lifelong practice that you have to engage with because it's one of those things that and because i know like so clearly it has so many studies that have shown that like mindfulness-based meditation literally just helps you so much mm -hmm. like I know that it's worth it but it's like starting a new habit of something and it is like a choice that you're choosing intentionally to check in with your brain and be present with whatever is which when you're feeling like shit is not really like what you want to be doing right but I I've found meditation to be very helpful in the past during the pandemic. I didn't meditate at all. Cause I was just like, I literally can't like, mm -hmm. I just need to dissociate. And, um, now I'm, I'm trying to get back into it, but my therapist recommended this place that I went to and also was like, I think it's really good for you to meditate with other people because what the practitioner was also saying is that like in Buddhism, like meditation was a group practice. Like it mm -hmm. was always a group practice. And like, it's great that you can meditate alone and all you need to meditate is like the body that you're in and like your consciousness, you don't need anything else, but like to do it in a group environment creates this kind of, you know, like spirituality where you're all doing it with other people who are like, you know, kind of when you're in the room, like everybody is like being present with their own mind right now you yeah, know yeah and I'm gonna talk about this later because um I'm talking about this section from uh this book called who is wellness for on meditation but she talks a lot about how the westernized idea of it is like meditation is something that you do alone to right. go like you know to be more successful up. right yeah exactly so that you can like go out and be be the best workhorse but it was like never intended to be that and like people who meditate too are like not going to be super judgmental so it was like everyone was kind of talking to each other it was a small group it was a pretty diverse group like you know like many different kinds of people who were all like in their like 20s and 30s and it was just cool to be in like a community space because I feel like with COVID there's so few yeah like community spaces that I've been in and like going to a gym is not like a community space no, like it is not. there's an aggression in a gym that's I like, just I tweeted recently because I go to this kind of like you know quote-unquote luxury fitness club because it has like a co-working space and stuff and i tweeted something like uh having the closest possible experience to human invisibility by walking around a luxury gym with a bmi over 23 <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> like nobody looks at me they're actually, actually just kind of like great. it's so sad that she's here no literally they're like wow she really should be here but you know what i have a theory about the gym i think the gym is literally trying to and i'm trying to get you to join it obviously but yeah. i have my theory is that the gym is trying to like breed a certain kind of person to be in there i'm sure first of all Logan Paul goes to that gym. No, Noah, Noah saw him there. Yeah, like two weeks ago. 
Did I not tell you that? No, that's disgusting. Yeah, so Logan Paul goes there. That's the vibe. I go there because it's a really good rate, surprisingly, because they do the under 25 discount. Which I would not get if I joined the gym. Because you're old. Because I'm old. And haggard. And just turned 25. But this contributes to my idea that they're trying to breed a certain type of person. Because if it's under, if you're under 25, it's like $100 off a month. Right. And so I'm paying like, I think like 100 or like maybe 150 for like unlimited classes, unlimited gym access, unlimited access to like the co-working space. There's like a rooftop pool. Um, so it's like a good deal for me but then like and and I'm like a relatively fit person I'm not like dedicating my life to fitness but I would say like I've taken a lot of exercise classes and the classes at this place are the most difficult workout classes I've ever taken yeah I don't think I could handle that like I actively feel like they're trying to like shoo me out the door with every class probably but then that's when I realized I took this bar class which I've taken bar classes before and in my experience it's more just like small isolated movements like closer to Pilates like expressly I was not expecting cardio um and maybe I just haven't taken a lot of bar classes and that's what bar is like but anyway we're like 30 minutes in and I'm like dripping in fucking sweat I'm drenched I'm so tired like my muscles hurt so badly how long are these classes that one was gonna be an hour and so I checked the clock and I was like another 30 minutes I was like And then I had the thought in my head of like, I think I've gotten what I want out of this workout. Like, I feel like I've worked up a sweat. Like, I've gotten up my heart rate. I've worked my muscles. I feel good. Um, And the the rest of this class feels kind of daunting to me. Like, I don't know how much the rest of it would serve me. And then, of course, the second thought I get is like, like, you stupid bitch. Like, you should stay for the full class. Like, don't like, you know, walk out early. And then I was like, I'm paying for this. (laughs) Yeah, you literally can just leave. Like it's actually kind of revolutionary to be like oh you can just leave but it is kind of shameful to leave like at least when i used to do soul cycle like it's pretty hard to leave a soul cycle class i know it is they make it hard because it's so dark in there so if you open the door like the light comes in yeah but i really think i'm gonna start doing revolutionary acts which is going to that fancy west hollywood gym and leaving halfway through every class love because there's no reason to stay once you're like already like if you get the cardiovascular benefits like do people leave sometimes um i have never seen anyone leave (laughs) because the culture it's so like i mean that's the other thing too the other thing that is that like i was looking around and like there are some people in there who are clearly very very fit and who like for whom fitness is their thing like they're in like matching sets right. and stuff and i look around and even those bitches look miserable so i'm like okay it's not just me yeah it's not, i'm also just like i don't know I, sometimes i like a workout to really just like kind of milk me but um sometimes i just really don't want to like have a workout in which i'm like gasping for breath and like yeah. my muscles are like threatening to collapse on me that's how big died in the new sex i know on the peloton Peloton. i also love like i use my aunt's peloton and i'm obsessed because nobody can see me working out and that's a real benefit to me personally how hard are the peloton classes for you they can be hard like you can take some of them are really hard you should get a peloton i kind of want to get a peloton (laughs) i love pelotons like i'm actually obsessed we should become peloton influencers and they should give us peloton if you're listening please gift us pelotons and we will talk about it because i'm addicted yeah but i really like peloton because you can choose the difficulty of your classes you can just end a class in the middle of it if you want to yeah and like you just nobody's watching you nobody's judging you like 
I don't like to be judged. And when I used to do some soul cycle classes in high school, like everybody there was like that. Like they were all going so hard. Yeah. And like I sat in the back because I was like, I don't want to like be with all the skinnies yeah. in the front. <laughs> like so like fit and like it just really stressed me out. Yeah. No, it's really I mean, it is also just like crazy to be in an environment where like everybody is like top point zero zero one percent hot. Right. And like I get to just like walk around like a normal person and be like love being know. invisible. I know. Have you ever thrown up after a workout? Oh yeah. Yeah, me too. Bitch, I had an eating disorder for <laughs> ten years. Yeah, but yes, I mean I like just from the act of like working out too hard. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's not a good th- that's the thing it's not like admirable to like do a workout so hard that like you can't walk the next morning no. or to like you know it's just you can it's okay i remember in college one time i um went to the gym and i like drank a bunch of water oh no and then i like was on the elliptical and then i was like i'm gonna throw up and i just like threw up all the water yeah and it was like okay well okay. i think I, and then i was like i'm gonna leave now <laughs> i don't think i need to still be here but it was weird because it was like why did my body not absorb any of that water it was just yeah. like no thanks no i'm rejecting that actually rejecting yeah should we do our mailbox moments yeah let's we have a lot moments. to talk about today okay um ma, 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 ma. Me, 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 me. Are you a honk shoe or a me, me, me when you snore? I don't snore. I really don't. Everybody says that. I really don't, though. Not a single noise. No, I sleep very peacefully, but I'm having like horrific dreams. <laughs> but that sounds like a me, me, me to me. Maybe it is. I mean, Maybe I think like every once in a while you roll over and you're like, hmm. I think sometimes in my sleep, I've been told that I go like, that's cute. <laughs> that's or, nice. Or like, I am sure I make noises, but like, if so, it's de- I think I'm more of a me, me, me than a honk shoe. Are you a honk shoe? Well, here's the thing is I always thought I was a me, me, me. And then um, <laughs> this is actually a really embarrassing story. But I recently saw um, Redacted and I went over to our friend Nira's house because mm-hmm. Nira was like, oh, we should watch a movie. And so we're like, OK, we're going to go over. And like the thing about me is that if you put a movie on in front of me and it is past 830 p.m. And there's enough men in it. I will be I will asleep. be going asleep. <laughs> no, me so too. So we watched Phantom Thread or they watched Phantom Thread rather. And you know, I was like kind of on this like tiny little couch like with redacted and I was literally sleeping my way through the movie, but like every once in a while I would like wake up That's and, what like, hot girlies do. Exactly. And I'd readjust and I was like, Okay, great, this is just like a little pregame for my sleep. Um, come to find out that <laughs> apparently every 10 to 15 minutes i would snore so loud i woke myself up (laughs) and looked around in confusion (laughs) before going back to sleep wow and redacted described it to me as like the cutest thing he's ever seen and i'm like i actually want to like choke myself because like i kept waking up throughout thinking oh this is just a really uncomfortable couch meanwhile i had literally been honking my way <laughs> through the movie to uh yeah to no avail my favorite um me falling asleep during a movie situation was when i immediately fell asleep during the Nicolas cage pig movie because there were no girlies in it and right. i was told there would be girlies and then i, I hate felt, when they lie to you about i that. hate when they lie to or like when it. the girlies are in it but they don't speak the it's only like, girly in the movie was named tweaket and she was a meth addict who was called tweaket and she didn't even have a real name so you, you couldn't connect personally I could, with tweaket i mean look there tweaket didn't even show up until like the middle of the movie <laughs> so i was fast asleep and then i wake up and i go what happened to the pig and everybody was like julia the pig did not make it because <laughs> the whole movie's like about it 
spoiler alert for the movie pig <laughs> there's like a truffle sniffing pig and like he's trying to get his pig back and the pig does not make it wow but i was i really was just like curious to what happened yeah. to the pig but apparently that was like a big plot point that i missed well that's a natural question for the about the movie called pig i know literally okay speaking of movies this is a email about the new movie where the crawdads sing mm. okay but it's a book it, it's based on a book right. so the email is called having a moral dilemma over a book that i love hi binchies i'm so excited to be writing to you guys even though it's not a super fun topic for me i'm a huge fan of the podcast and i always look forward to wednesdays as you can tell by my subject line i'm feeling a lot of guilt over a book that i recently read where the crawdads sing i have also read this book bt dubs oh did you like it it was fine We'll talk about it more okay. after this email. I had started to hear more about the book with a movie adaptation coming out, so I decided to give it a try, and I ended up loving it. To sum it up, if you guys don't know already, it is about a young girl living on the coast of North Carolina, period. Slay. Who was abandoned by her entire family. Oh. Not Slay. <laughs> and was forced to raise herself in the marsh, and by doing so, she eventually became an expert of the land. They call her Marsh Girl in this book, by the gotcha. way. Gotcha. It is also a murder mystery in which the girl is the primary suspect. I thought that the writing, at least most of it, was very beautiful, and I really liked the plot. I also felt a special connection to it because I have lived in a small town in North Carolina my entire life, so it was exciting to read all the imagery that the author included about North Carolina lands, as well as references to well-known cities like Chapel Hill and Asheville. Um, let me say personally about this book. It's like, it's almost like a taxonomy book. Like the amount of like animal, like information, like the girl kind of has like an encyclopedic knowledge of like all the bugs in the marsh and like all the animals. And honestly, I feel like you would like it. Cause I feel like you did a lot of exploring of nature as yeah, a child. I'm like, where, when's the other shoe going to drop? Cause I like this book so far. <laughs> I know <laughs> not until after I finished the book and started looking at reviews. Did I find out that the author has a very, very problematic past that manifests itself in the book in ways that I did not realize the author Delia Owens is a zoologist and wildlife expert and her and her ex-husband spent time in Zambia studying the land but they also headed anti-poaching efforts it's a complicated situation and I'll link an article about it below but the main point is that she was she's wanted in Zambia for being involved in the killing of an alleged poacher There are many questions and criticisms circulating about why she and her husband as white Americans took it upon themselves to go to foreign land and act as police, especially when the Zambian government has their own way of punishing poachers. Owens apparently has also said problematic things expressing disdain for how the Zambian people live on their land. All in all, it is not a good situation at all and leaves a really bad taste of white saviorism and colonization. I have also seen criticisms of the book itself of how Owens wrote the black characters by perpetuating racial stereotypes, such as the use of dialect and slurs in the dialogue. This happens just a few times in the book, but it's still there the book is set in the 1960s so when reading it i originally thought that owens was trying to use historically relevant language thinking the book was written at least 30 years ago when conversations of race were very different from the ones we have today nope it was published in 2018 which also really rubbed me the wrong way considering that owens was using racial slurs and dialogue when it was pretty unnecessary to the plot it was always the bad characters that said these slurs but regardless i'm not sure if it makes it much better i've seen some people say that it is okay to do this in literature since the point is to paint a whole picture of the story in context but i'm still torn on whether that excuse it or not i'm having a lot of mixed emotions about this book and thinking about how much i love the story and the characters now comes with the unsettling feeling of knowing what the author has done in real life usually when i read books i try to focus on making my own connection with the story and i like to find meaning in it for myself and it's especially hard to take that connection away after i've invested myself in the book and read it all the way through on the other hand i recognize that as a white woman i have the privilege to enjoy such things because they do not directly hurt me i would love to hear y'all's takes on enjoying books and other pieces of art that were made by problematic people as i'm sure that i'm not the first person to feel this way about a particular book or movie i think you guys are very thoughtful people and fair people so i trust your judgment 
Um, I don't know if you'll see this email, but I hope it gets to you. Thanks for being my parasocial big sisters. Lots of love. And then she sent us an article in Time. If people are interested, it's a Time article about the controversy over where the crawdads sing. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've kind of circled around the like art versus the artist debate for a really long time. The death of the author, guys. We got you got to read the death Walter of the Benjamin. author. That's Roland Bart. Wait, what Walter Benjamin did what? Art in the Age, of, the mechanical age of Mechanical Reproduction. Classic. Classic. But in that, it's an essay by Roland Bart. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure some like PhD hoes are going to be mad at me <laughs> for saying it wrong. But basically that essay is all about how like we need to believe in the death of the author like the author does not need to be tied to like whatever the book is or like the medium is whatever the piece of art is like we shouldn't be so invested in like what the what the author's life is what the author's story is like the book should be able to stand on its own um and it's it's kind of he argues against this is a like a quote from like you know the Wikipedia essay about it, but it, he argues against traditional literary criticisms practice of relying on the intentions and biography of an author to definitively explain the quote, ultimate meaning of a text. Right. So basically like you can't go back and be like, well, clearly Delia Owens meant this by the book because she was arrested in Zambia for like killing a poacher. Right. Like that doesn't give you the true definitive meaning. I don't know a hundred percent if I agree with that, but I do think that like, so many problematic people have made stuff that is like enjoyable to read or listen to or watch. And like, yes, we have to be conscious about that. Like for example, like with, I don't know, with like, what's his name? Like Woody Allen movies, Woody Allen movies. And like Woody Allen movies, like you really can see in a lot of them, how his personal life like impacts it. And it's like icky and gross. Yeah. Um, and Chris Brown, like I'm not going to listen to trash music music. separately. Yeah. Like, cause he's still alive also. Right. But like, you know, Picasso was an asshole. Like lots of people were like, awful people like i'm trying to think of like i mean there's just so many i mean michael jackson like right. was awful allegedly which <laughs> you guys should alleged? see the document lots of people don't think that michael jackson did anything wrong i mean i really haven't looked into it but like i just trust. you got you got to watch the documentary it's a difficult question especially in this age of like cancel culture because it's like at what point can you separate the art yeah. from the artist and at what point do you have to consider like how they're benefiting from it, especially if they're still alive. I kind of feel like if they're not alive anymore, like, you know, yeah. people being like Elvis was so problematic. Okay. But he's like dead. So <laughs> yeah, you can listen dead. to his music. And he died a horrible, he died a horrible death. death. So yeah. You can take solace in that. Yeah. I mean, as like somebody who loves books and loves authors and like, you know, Faulkner is one of my favorite authors of all right. time. He wrote a lot about race, a lot about racism, like on the correct side of it obviously <laughs> but you know like he he is ton, a white guy he's yeah. a white guy ton of fucking slurs in there like there's an right. argument to be made on both sides huckleberry finn has yeah. tons of slurs like of course of course and i just think that like the slicing and dicing of individual people um in order to like judge the quality of their art right. is on like in a broad term as a broad framework is like pretty unhelpful yeah. I mean, the article that came out about a little life that we talked about is basically about this. Like, does the does the author who is an Asian woman who is straight have the right to write about like an experience of a gay man? You know, right. and people were like criticizing her because they're like she's obsessed with like gay men suffering, which like is a valid critique. And you guys should yeah. read the article about it. But like, it's just interesting because so often nowadays it's like, do you have the right to write about that or 
does your personal life align with what you wrote about? And then it's like Roland Bart is like rolling in his grave. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like, I mean, I can just speak for myself. Like when I make things, I feel that they are of course like intimately connected from me, but ultimately they are a separate thing from me and they exist on their own. It's like in the same way that I write something basically just so that I can process it. I write a song just so I can process it. And then like, thousands of people all over the world are like this song means something to me and it means something entirely different to them than it means to me like if it was just about me that wouldn't be possible right like when you are interacting with a piece of art like your your uh experience with it matters like it's not you know people are like thank you for making this thank you for making this and it's like when you connect with something that i made or something that anybody makes it doesn't say so much about the author as it does about you because you are seeing something in that totally and you ultimately can decide how you engage with text and I don't think it's like necessarily productive to make a character assassination out of like every single person right and to throw out all of their work based on what you know are kind of like shifting gu- and I'm not saying that she's great for doing anti-poaching work but no. it, like like maybe we don't commend her as like a person but like you know did she write a book that you enjoyed great you enjoyed the book is like it seems like she's kind of like a sus and like possibly problematic person, but like that doesn't mean that you didn't resonate with the book. Right. And I just want to read like a couple quotes from the death of the author. Cause I think this will make everybody feel better. This is one quote from it. Literature is that neuter, that composite, that oblique into which every subject escapes the trap where all identity is lost, beginning with the very identity of the body that writes. And then the second quote I want to read is he says, the modern writer, scripter, is born simultaneously with his text. He is in no way supplied with a being which precedes or transcends his writing. He is in no way the subject of which his book is the predicate. There is no other time than that of the utterance, and every text is eternally written here and now. Yeah. Which, I mean, whether you agree with that or not, like, I do think that it is true that, like, art can transcend the artist. And it can, you know, how often have you read a book and been like, wow, I thought that this meant this. And then the author's like, oh, I actually like didn't even think about it meaning that. You right. Know? I mean, people do that with my songs all the time too. And right. I think that there's a difference between like, I'm sure there are people calling for her book to be like taken off shelves for the movie to stop being made and whatever. And I just think we have to have some delineation. Like right. she's not inciting like hate speech. She's not like trying to like make a big political movement. Right. Like I think that there has to be a difference. It's between, not mind comp. It's not mind comp. <laughs> there has to be a difference between things that are like actively clearly like harmful and right. that maybe, you know, cross the, the bounds of free speech and things that like, yeah, or maybe you look at it and you're like, Ooh. yeah. And there, there is a world in which you can leave that and take the rest. Like, sounds like she's a very talented zoologist. And she knows <laughs> she, a lot. She really like, knows a lot about zoology. And like that part of it sounds great. It sounds like that part of it like, resonated with you. Yeah, and that has nothing to do with like race or like any of the her weird relationship to things. And like that's okay for you to read that and be like, yeah, I liked this part of it. Right. Like, this resonated with me. Right. I think it's it's important to think about people's identity, but the fact that like now identity has become inseparable from like anything anyone creates. That's just a little bit concerning to me. Yeah, no, I think it is too. I totally think it is. And I really think, you know, Roland Bart is kind of saying here, like the text is like written in the moment and the author doesn't necessarily even have like a claim to it. Like it's, it transcends the author. It transcends the subject. It transcends the reader. Like whatever it means to you is whatever it means to you. And once it's in your hands, it might mean something completely different than like its original intention. Right, exactly. So that's our thoughts on that. Will you read the second email that I sent you? Yeah. Okay, this email is titled, Capitalism is Truly That Bitch, and it has claws. 
My dearest benchstresses, as I type this email to my two favorite parasocial besties, let me set the scene for you. I'm laying on my floor eating stolen food after getting home from my second opening shift this weekend at the terrible and gross restaurant where I show up to get utterly insulted by Republicans and covered in tartar sauce so that my managers can hand me $100 cash at the end for doing the bare minimum. Been there, sister. I got home, immediately ate a weed gummy, took a shower, and opened my laptop to begin writing this email. I've been an avid listener of the pod since the early days after following Julie on Instagram for years. So I, of course, listened to the first app when it dropped and the the rat in my brain has run a little faster on her little wheel ever since. Mentally exercising queen. I have never written in due to my lack of stupid little brain cells and to be able to type up some funny little jokey jokes and fear not making both of you laugh as hard as you make me. However, after the events of this weekend transpired, I knew that I needed to finally speak my truth. Wow. I'm excited. (laughs) Me too. As previously mentioned, I work at Redacted that I won't name due to the corporation being large and oh so much more powerful than I, a recent college grad spending the summer a slave to capitalism with three jobs before I take out my life's worth and loans to attend grad school. The restaurant that employs me is one of many chains that houses a lobster tank in the lobby where guests can walk in so they can literally size up their dinner on the way inside. Who wouldn't absolutely love to be able to pick out the specific lobster to literally die a sad little death other than the customers that frequent our fine dining? You should have been there when I found out that I, a self-proclaimed flexitarian, have to take them out of the tank myself and bring them to the cook when my table orders one. Anyways, this morning I arrived to work at a ripe 10 a.m. for an opener shift before my manager who seemed to be running a little bit late. I waited and chatted with the other kitchen staff outside the building, working on my less than poor Spanish skills since most of my other coworkers do not even attempt to speak to our staff. Most of them are undocumented workers who my girl boss slaying queen of a kitchen manager employs. Eventually said manager arrived and unlocked the doors for us to walk inside. Not paying much attention to the normal looking lobby, I walk to the back room to put down my bag before I'm alerted by an absolute shrill of a scream and the beginning of what sounded like a horror movie from the kitchen. I ran into the back and was quickly stopped when I turned the corner and my coworkers were all running around the kitchen, attempting to catch the, you guessed it, six lobsters <laughs> that had somehow escaped the tank in the middle of the night and were wreaking <laughs> havoc in the kitchen. It was absolutely one of those moments that I wish for a camera crew to follow me around because for the next 15 minutes, my coworkers and I ran around shouting at each other as the water bugs ran under the counters and and around our kitchen escaping all of our attempts lobsters are literally not scary until they get their rubber bands off somehow launch themselves out of a tank built for them not to be able to do so and are running full speed at you it got even better when one of the kitchen workers brought out the speaker and turned on bad bunny on full blast eventually our dishwasher who i've heard speak a total of three words the entire time that i have worked there silenced us all while he caught every single one of them dusted them off and threw them back into the tank with his bare hands wow (laughs) We literally sold one of them that night and I watched someone eat it as I remembered it scurrying around the dish pit, slamming its claws at anyone who came near. To put in a few words due to the already extreme length of this email, capitalism is truly that bitch and it has claws. I just figured that you both might like that story and get a little giggle from it. I love you both so much and thank you for keeping me sane throughout these years of horror and especially throughout this extremely depressing capitalism summer. Sending bestie love, Mary. I'm just imagining the lobsters like running That's around. That's so funny. Six is a lot of lobsters. That's a ton. How did they escape? I don't know. I think maybe they formed a coup. They were plotting. They were plotting. It's so, I like, I don't know what it is with like luxury restaurants and like live animals because it's more than just like, I remember I went on this date with this guy who like also worked in um, luxury restaurants and he lived with uh his boss who was also the head chef uh and the guy like one day he came home and the entire house was filled with quails (laughs) because he decided he wanted like the boss decided he wanted like fresh quail eggs or something and then there was just like literally quails like all over the house i've never seen a quail 
I think they're cute. Does Red Lobster have a lobster tank? Is this like a Red Lobster moment? Honestly, I would not. Be, let me go. I've never been to a Red Lobster. So we're I not saying know. that this is Red Lobster to protect our queen's Lobster job. isn't kosher, so I've never eaten one. Why? Because they're bottom feeders? Yeah. Because they don't have scales. Mm. The restaurant chain Red Lobster is known for having a big tank in the front of each of its locations full of lobsters. Also, I know you're saying that your girl queen sleigh boss kitchen manager employs undocumented workers and she's like a, a sleigh boss for that. And like maybe that's the case. But also wanted to note that a big reason why people un- employ undocumented workers is because they're like very easy to like rip off and not pay the full brunt of their labor and to blackmail them into working way more because they're not documented and they can't report like time or like wage theft or like being you know done over time so like a lot of a lot of the reason why people do that is to actually fuck over the laborers have you experienced that in your past uh restaurant oh my god yeah it's like yeah there are people who like could literally never get a shift off because they were undocumented and so like they were just at the absolute like whim of it like we had to i mean and it's kind of obviously like people always find workarounds around the system like we just kind of like as a staff like would um kind of look out for each other and if somebody who was undocumented like needed a day off like we would cover for them so they wouldn't have to like go ask the management um but it's fucked up like they absolutely like it's not always you know just like oh i'm being so kind and employing these people who are undocumented not telling anybody like they really get off on like there's like they wouldn't report them to um to the labor forces because it's actually really working in their favor to have people that they can like pay a a shit ton less and to like fuck them over with hours like it's really fucked up there's just so much awful capitalism in that email (sighs) yeah yeah all right should we talk about wellness let's talk about wellness wellness okay so i'm going to talk about the history of wellness there's two articles that i read for this one of them is from the financial times and it's called from spas to psychedelics the history of wellness and the other one was a jstor daily article called the false promises of wellness culture and there was this um quote from jstor from that article that i want to just start out with because i think it's an interesting quote so Here it goes. On a 1979 edition of 60 Minutes, Dan Rather declared, wellness, there's a word you don't hear every day. It means exactly what you might think it means. The opposite of illness. It's a movement that is catching on all over the country. Later in the segment, Rather spoke to Dr. John W. Travis, founder of the Wellness Resource Center in Marin County, north of San Francisco. Just because you aren't sick, Travis told Rather, you don't have any symptoms and you could go get a checkup and get a clean bill of health. That doesn't mean that you're well interesting interesting so that is a that is a quote about wellness in general which i think is illuminating to how we think about wellness today but so this um, article that i read in the financial times was talking about these two books um, and one of them was called health hedonism and hypochondria and it's by academic and theologian ian bradley and so he it's kind of like a history of spas like his Mm, whole book is a history of spas and he calls spas quote the pioneers of the vast modern wellness industry And so he talks about Greek and Roman thermal mineral springs. Like people have always been going to the spa, like natural water spas since the first century people have been wanting to go to. And even today we abandon our cities to take to the waters often. Think Mm. of the Hamptons. I mean, how often do people leave the cities to take to the waters? Um, And these spas were really important areas of like political and diplomatic conversations. People had artistic, literary and musical inspirations and like contributions that were made at these spas. Like they were totally like social places. Um, And they had a cosmopolitan atmosphere where there was also a lot of drama amongst the healing waters. Um, And according to Bradley, these spas laid a foundation for a broader social and cultural understanding of well-being. And then afterwards, there were, you know, 
medicalized centers for hydrotherapy and exercise, which are called the precursors of modern aerobics, Pilates, and weight training. So people were going to spas. People always have always believed in like the healing properties of like water and things like that. This is also like specifically more of like a Western history of wellness because I know you're going to talk about yeah. more Eastern history. But in if we're talking about how wellness came to be in America the way that it is now, it started in the 18th and 19th century. And the dramas of spa life were captured in literature and music. So Jane Austen's novels have societies decampment to the spa town of Bath. Johann Strauss's flirtatious opera Die Fledermaus is set in a spa near Vienna. Or in Dostoevsky's The Gambler, it's set in the fictional German spa of Roulettenburg. So there's a lot of like spas that are in literature from this time period as like places of healing. In 1891, Louis Kuhn, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, he's a resident of Leipzig, Germany. He published The New Science of Healing, in which he recounted his struggles with pain and chronic illness and how he overcame them. He basically was like, the medical establishment has not helped me at all with my pain and illness. What you really need is natural cures. And so he came out with this guide that had natural cures for every ailment, and it was all about fresh air, strict vegetarianism, not having salt and sugar, taking up hydrotherapy, as we mentioned earlier, steam baths and cold water plunges to rid the body of disease Mm. so he was saying like these are the natural cures like i have been suffering and the medical establishment abandoned me and like this is the deal right and then in the late 19th century so right when you know lewis kunn is writing this book many europeans saw urban industrial society as degenerative damaging to body and soul we've talked about this in our episode on zara and fast fashion kind of Mm, the idea of like the degeneration of society and like natural life because of the industrial revolution and you know, the modern masses, they were like, everyone's disconnected from nature. Like that is like, you know, Walter Benjamin's whole thing is that like technology distances us from like, you know, nature and things like that. And then people were starting sedentary work during this time period. And there was like technology that was making people feel dehumanized. So it was really like the prosperous Europeans. You can really see the parallels here to like current American wellness. They were like, we need a wellness culture because the industrial revolution, like we're getting really tired. Like even though we're not even the ones who are like in the factories, like (laughs) slaving away, but like we just feel like technology is alienating us from nature and we need to get a hold of it so and that's when gwyneth paltrow showed up. that's when she (laughs) showed up in 1900 no but so they called wellness culture in europe they went by a different name life reform okay so you would think that would mean the abolition of capitalism (laughs) yeah no it didn't (laughs) life reform was the big new deal in the late 19th century not the new deal like you know, the Roosevelt (laughs) New Deal. It was just like the big fat. So during, you know, in in life reform groups, including like Louis Kahn, who was like one of these people, Kuna, I don't know. My dad's going to get so mad at me because he speaks fluent German and I don't know how to pronounce any German names, but like, forgive me for that. So people who were engaging in life reform, they were doing vegetarianism, raw food diets, open air exercise, nudism, spas, and sunbathing. Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, But I'm reading this quote. This is from... um, the JSTOR article, what began as an effort to mitigate the side effects of affluence, namely inactivity and indulgence, transformed the very meaning of health from not being sick into a, quote, rational, hygienic lifestyle that stressed self-restraint and moderation in all aspects of life. And that was written by Michael Howe, a historian of Germany's life reform movement. And so it was life reformers who turned the well-cared-for physique into a virtue. So even though the Greeks and, you know, during antiquity, they, you know, developed the western aesthetic ideal of like the lean male fit body it was really the life reformers that were like 
no good health becomes synonymous with beauty and self-fulfillment mm. so like if you are reforming your life like you look good and that's how we right. know that you're doing well i love how they were like yeah it like really sucks that i'm like sitting around like kind of idle because a bunch of people are laboring <laughs> and it's not for me, me. Yeah. and now like i don't have any purpose to my life time to hit the gym right i guess totally and so this is also the industrial revolution where people are like more sedentary they have more access to right. food so they're becoming more concerned with their bodies and the wellness trend is growing and so here's another quote from how life reform gave its supporters a sense of agency in their own future amid sweeping economic and social change sounds relatable to current times <laughs> the body became a source of autonomy and self-determination at least for those men and women who have the resources to cultivate it any like eating disorder uh researcher will tell you that that's true yeah and so you can see that the 21st century has some features in common with the end of the 19th century that there's a technology revolution capitalist expansion more wealth a wealth gap labor insecurity and anxiety just yeah. status anxiety amongst people and um the life reformers not only were they just trying to like create wellness or whatever what they really did was that they blended health with beauty so it soon became that a person's outward appearance was the indicator of their physical spiritual and mental health and that you know development had very dangerous even deadly consequences we're talking yeah. about eating disorders here and so um before I go on to like the more modern stuff about wellness, I just want to read this quote. The modern world is a Darwinian place. As long as there is disenchantment with it, there will be the false redemption of wellness, mm. which I think is really interesting because that's interesting. Cause I'm going to get almost like Darwinian in this one quote that I pulled. So that's really interesting that you have that love. Okay. Wow. So that's all like the 18th, 19th century, um, people are you know getting into life reform i love that they're like we need reform for life like we literally need to reform <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the class system it actually <laughs> has nothing to do with like the people who are miserable it's just about right. like us going to spas okay so we were talking about wellness from 60 minutes that quote was from 1979 mm -hmm. the first one i read but the term wellness was actually popularized in the 1950s in the late 1950s by dr halbert l dunn who was the so-called father of the movement he wrote in the canadian journal of public health in 1959 he defined high-level wellness, which is the organizing principle behind his work, as, quote, a condition of change in which the individual moves forward, climbing toward a higher potential of functioning. And so in this, he also drew a distinction between good health, which in previous terms was thought to just be the absence of illness or just like passively staying the right. same and wellness, which is an active ongoing pursuit. Mm. So wellness has this like you can't be well if you're not working for it basically right they're like to be well you need to always be working and striving for better mm -hmm. this other book that was referenced in this article is called retreat how the counterculture invented wellness and this is like around the same time like the 60s and 70s which actually gets into the anti-psychiatry movement which is why you know i'll do another episode on just that because it's very interesting but um ingram wrote this book a man whose last name is ingram i don't know what his first name is <laughs> but he basically in this book explores how psychoanalysis and psychedelics combined with american counterculture movement of meditation mysticism and spiritual awakening created the contemporary wellness economy so all of the like appropriation of eastern culture combined with the fact that psychoanalysis was new and psychedelics were new like that is what really set the foundation for like the modern american wellness culture um and with the rise of lsd culture there were all these like trippy headquarters that were emerging so like 
um leary who was like timothy leary he was like a famous like lsd guy Mm -hmm. um he created millbrook in new york state which was like a retreat or i guess like a place for people to just like do drugs and do well ken kesey who wrote one flew over the cuckoo's nest he had a santa cruz escape called la honda which was home of the acid test which i had to look into because i didn't know what that was uh the acid tests were a series of parties held by him primarily in the san francisco bay area during the mid-1960s centered on the use of and advocacy for lsd commonly known as acid so he would just have parties where everybody did acid and these were like the wellness retreats of great the day. um and he would like have posters i know for many them. people who are very interested in wellness in that i case. know well the acid test was like he would put up posters that were like can you pass the acid test Interesting. like come here or whatever then there are also the anti-psychiatry centers so anti-psychiatry is a movement during this time period where people are like you know people's mental illness is only a function of the fact that our society is making us crazy which like i agree with to a certain extent but then they were like don't treat anybody with schizophrenia just give them all acid and like put them in like a retreat together so then there were these anti-psychiatry retreats david cooper's villa 21 near saint albans and lang rd lang who was like another famous acid anti-psychiatry guy he had a place called kingsley hall in east london where people would basically just like roam around like doing acid and like having mental illness and like there was not really any Mm. treatment for it um but then when the experimentation goes too far then there are retreats that take the form of medical recovery so then there are like hate ashbury free clinics and like the counterculture is evolving again because they abandon lsd for meditation they um found all these like meditation and yoga groups that are based on like the anti-aesthetic Hindu philosophies and influenced by Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization, which is like the pinnacle of wellness optimization. Yeah. So they're taking all these different ideas from like psychology and Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophy and, you know, anti-psychiatry in general to just combine it and be like, here's how we're going to be well in this era, which once again, the 1960s is a, period in which like there's a lot of tumultuous like political events going on like people are unsure like that's why the whole hippie movement emerges is because people feel fed up with the way that the world currently is Mm -hmm. um and so that's another moment where it kind of opens up into like we need to be well so the whole point is that like being well is like an active thing that you have to participate in you have to go to the acid parties you have to go to the bathhouses. you have to go to the spa like and also this is like a lot of people who have the ability to like not work and like go yeah. do acid all day like you know it's it's a lot of like although the hippie movement was not all like upper class people like a lot of them the joke is is that like those are like the boomers who then were like okay now i'm done with the hippie movement right. and i'm like gonna go buy a house and like vote for reagan or whatever yeah but this movement is like basically that quote about like during times of like spiritual disillusionment or where we don't know where we're going with life wellness it offers us the idea that like this can get us out of this but it's only an illusion yeah and it's it's outsourcing it's constantly outsourcing like the way that you're going to deal with this like well i don't have it within me like i need to go like seek out this treatment or i need to seek out this like way of doing it or i need to seek out this person where like you know other ideas of like spiritual enlightenment like meditation like the origins of that is like you just need to be with yourself totally and obviously capitalism has always been involved ever since capitalism has been invented but i will say that like what separates these earlier movements of wellness from like the current modern day wellness movement is that it's completely like tied with capitalism and it's all about making money off of the wellness movement making money off of people's suffering and you know disillusionment and trying to get them to like seek and to help themselves like the whole self-help movement is like all about wellness you know right and it's completely entrenched with capitalism in terms of like how can we make the most money off of people's suffering and disillusionment which is created by them living in a capitalist society the new thing is 
the wellness industry is taking over travel. So it's all about wellness tourism now. Not only must you be well in your own home, you need to actually go to other places, especially places where you're taking the philosophy from and like, you know, colonizing already. You need to go there to like truly become well. Wow. They figured it out, guys. Right. So in 2018, the wellness economy, like just the things that we're talking about, like meditation apps, whatever, Mm -hmm. that was $4.8 trillion worth in 2018. If wellness tourism growth remains steady, experts predict the industry will be valued at one trillion dollars in a few years so it's getting up there with just like regular old wellness this is by the way is from an article from bbc um called how the wellness industry is taking over travel so um major companies that are all about wellness like equinox soul cycle and lululemon are now all moving into the tourism sector offering multi-day excursions for members with health and fitness at their core so this was also written like before covid so i think a lot of these companies like i went to like um the equinox explore page Mm -hmm. which is like they're having these retreats and it's kind of like oh we've been shut down since covid but like this before like they're moving into like the tourism sector so wellness tourism is defined by the u.s-based nonprofit global wellness institute as quote travel associated with the pursuit of maintaining or enhancing one's personal well-being so you can go hiking in morocco with equinox you can sail towards the italian riviera with goop's gwyneth paltrow on the goop cruise (gasps) no and involved in all of this is a lot Live streaming from the Goop Cruise. Live streaming <laughs> from the Goop Cruise. You're going to get strictly curated meals, supervised workouts, and an emphasis on mindfulness and enlightenment. And they are going to run you thousands and thousands of dollars, yeah. of course. So while wellness travelers can be ever- anyone, most wellness travelers tend to be higher educated women between ages 30 and 60. Interesting. Got it. So, you know, if you think about people going to pilgrimages pilgrimages to the dead sea or taking the ancient baths in rome or the hot springs across asia like all these like baths and natural waters that we're talking about like yeah okay it's not that weird that like people want to go somewhere to like go to the waters and be well but according to the gwi this global wellness institute wellness tourism today is about much more than just the destination or activities it's an extension of the very values and lifestyle of the traveler Mm. so like Equinox Explorer, this is the brand's travel line. You can go, the cheapest thing that you could do, at least when Equinox Explorer was still existing, was a four-day running tour of Florence, which started at $2,000, uh, $2,350. And the priciest six days of hiking in Morocco begins at $6,250. Does that include airfare? No, probably not. But <laughs> yeah, it definitely sure includes not. like the food and stuff. Right. Like, and you can just go like with trainers, you get local cuisine, oftentimes Michelin star, you know, chefs are cooking for you you do breathing sessions yoga hammam treatment like people want to go away and they're trusting these wellness brands to take them there right so it's like i know that i like equinox so like i would trust them Mm. to like make me well you know i know that i like reading goop's articles so like i would trust their wellness retreat and i did look up like because i was looking at goop wellness and stuff like goop still does share like the best wellness retreats you need to go to like these days or whatever and they'll share like a bunch of different wellness retreats and also the industry at large obviously companies are getting criticized for promoting scientifically unproven products and like you know saying things are natural that aren't actually natural homeopathic diet products that are now illegal or like promoting barefoot running shoes that have greater injury risks like you know if you look at the goop website like she's promoting all like raw pollen and stuff like you probably shouldn't be ingesting and the netflix program the goop lab the most recent like thing that they've made which explores the effectiveness of alternative therapies was described as quote a considerable health risk by simon stevens chief executive of the national health service england wow interesting and so 
but like something that I want to talk about that we're talking about community here that I think is so important is that not only on, is going on this branded trip like great I'm going to be well like you're going on this commitment that you're ensuring that you'll be surrounded by other people who are like like-minded. They love mm, to be like like-minded yeah. people. So you'll be around other people who care about wellness. Come build our hive mind at Goop Labs. Exactly. And this is actually something that I remember from my sociology class um, from Emile Durkheim. In 1912, he coined the term collective effervescence, which is the way that communal gatherings can intensify the experience of the group. So the group can become like spiritually enlightened or like heightened because of the collectivity of it. So the more yeah. people that are there, like the spirituality rises and you feel like you're getting somewhere. Like that's when what we watched Jesus camp, like that's what happened. Exactly. And it's also kind of like when I watched Synecdoche, New York for the first time, I was a little bit freaked out and then I showed it to redacted. And afterwards we had 30 minutes where we thought we were in a play. <laughs> we were really psyching each other out. Yeah. That's what happens on the goop trips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, in church, in synagogue, in like, you know, temples, like all of these places are places where like in concerts, sports games, like collective effervescence can occur in any of these places. And what these like retreats are offering is like the opportunity for people who are very disconnected and probably like CEOs because like who else is paying like $6,000 to go on like an Equinox retreat yeah. or whatever. Like, people who probably don't feel a lot of connection to the world to like have an opportunity to like connect with other people. And that's why these things are so appealing, not just because people want to be well, but because people actually are seeking community and right. like they really don't know how to find it. Yeah. Like they're suffering. They don't know how to find community. They want to find community in this like alien alienated, like atomized world, but they are suffering and they're hoping that Equinox and Goop can like offer them that and equinox totally. and goop are like we will absolutely capitalize on yeah. that and we will take your money yeah yeah no i feel like i know a lot of people in la who kind of get like sucked into that idea of like pursuing things that are like spiritual wellness related and end up liking the community but then also kind of drink the kool-aid of like totally. you know the rest of that stuff i mean three quarters of american adults report that they are actively seeking ways to improve their health like america is obsessed with being healthier especially we are sick. We are sick. Nation. But also, I mean, like we literally put poisons in our food, yeah. like other countries, like people don't have the same levels of obesity, which I read something really interesting about how it's not about people's personal choice to just like eat less. It's like, no, American food is like literally poisoned with yeah. like chemicals. And like when people from Europe come to America and stay for months, like they all say they gain weight and then they go to Europe and they like lose the weight right mm. back. And it's not that like like Americans actually don't live that sedentary of a lifestyle. Like Americans are obsessed with constantly working out, constantly exercising, constantly trying to better themselves and make themselves more well. And like, they're not getting there because like, we're still like poisoning our food and like people aren't, you know, join there's like, if you join a gym, like it's not like you necessarily get a community. Like yeah. it's kind of like, you're just working. I out. definitely don't. You definitely <laughs> Where don't they think I'm invisible. Yeah. I mean, people are so desperately trying to search for community, especially after covid and like i don't blame anybody for like trying to find ways to do it but it just seems sad because like community is one of the oldest things in existence like ever since like you know humans have existed like they've been in communities like humans live in communities so for us to continually be like separated from each other and trying to just go on our own wellness journeys that are separate from other right. people's wellness journeys like you know, you're not going to get very far if you're, you're missing only the point. focused. Yeah. Also, because a lot of your suffering is caused by the things that are used to organize our society. Yeah. Like the things that affect all of us. Yep. And like, it's not 
you know, Americans, I feel, get uh, antsy about the idea of, like, maybe not fucking invading every single country and maybe not, like, reaping the benefits of all of their labor because it's, like, what would we do if we didn't, if we couldn't buy a cashmere sweater at every single shop on the corner? Mm -hmm. But it actually is, like, more spiritually healthy to be able to live in a nation that, like, can provide for you adequately and that doesn't just, like, pump a bunch of money into, like, the consumer market. Like, that will actually enrich your life. And it will enrich your life knowing that the comforts that you enjoy are enjoyed by all and that are not at the expense of other people. Yeah, exactly. And, like, America's not what even close to one of the happiest countries on earth it's just ridiculous because it's like people are like please healthcare, and it's like the richest people in the nation like jack dorsey that are like sorry i was gone on like a seven month silent meditation retreat and i've heard from so many people that in silicon valley like the focus on like hallucinogens and like yeah. retreats and like burning man and like all these things like people are just desperately trying to search for meaning and it's like girl look at the world you live in look at the world look at the capitalism you live <laughs> you live in like are we ever going to be able to get there if everybody's life is just constantly trying to like survive or if you've made enough money to survive you're just looking for ways to find meaning because you're bored right exactly like maybe try helping other people with your money yeah um a great quote from a friend that i always uh keep in my back pocket is when in doubt zoom out zoom out and i really like that yeah i really how does that. that serve you personally well i mean a lot of times it's like me when i'm just like in my own neuroses and then i can like zoom out and think of like the world more cosmically and think of like my life in a holistic way that allows me to appreciate gratitude but i also in this scenario i think like for example a rich person is like feeling really you know upset and because they don't have anything to do and they're you know <laughs> it's not a, a new problem people. either right clearly like if you zoom out like you know capitalism do, and i'm not crying any tears for the ones who we will guillotine one day but you know capitalism does breed isolation it, it does. does create people who are uh, upset and miserable because they lack community and like that's a that's a zoom out and that's also out. look at the winners of capitalism are they happy are they spiritually connected like the people who have won capitalism like right. sure they have a ton of wealth that could literally change the world if they decided to give even any of it away but like none of them are like spiritually connected and happy like it doesn't people the are Jeff always Bezos like those sex that are like i love you alive girl i know <laughs> like their brains are not good they're not good <laughs> they're not functioning well like yeah. these people are not happy and better off because they're rich and like i know that's not a new thing to say to people but everybody's like okay but i would like to try it for myself to see if money brings me happiness and as we you would be but then if you were that rich you would be the most isolated person in the world because you can't relate to like anything real people go through you can't like your life is not the same as anybody else on the planet and everybody just wants to take advantage of you right like i feel sorry or wants you dead i feel sorry for her you know what i do pity her you know what i do (laughs) pity her us talking about jeff bezos (laughs) but if you want us to pity you start giving away some of your money like (laughs) when is the first billionaire gonna come out and be like money actually doesn't buy happiness right i'm gonna give some of it away they never will because they're obsessed with the power and the ego it makes them feel like they're worth something and now like when people say like oh i'm really into wellness like if they're not thinking about it critically and like with a political mind like it usually just means like i'm buying a bunch of shit and I'm like propelling the machine that makes us all unwell forward and that really made me think of there's this great Audre Lorde quote and Audre Lorde is like a black feminist um poet and in her and she like coined uh this term of self-care which has been obviously like bastardized from now but um it was like first appearing in her 1988 essay collection called A Burst of Light. And during this time, she was like, she was battling cancer and like also working in resistance movements. So she's talking yeah. about like actually taking care of herself. 
And she says, I had to examine in my dreams as well as in my immune function tests the devastating effects of overextension. Overextending myself is not stretching myself. I had to accept how difficult it is to monitor the difference. Necessary for me as cutting down on sugar. Crucial. Physically. Psychically. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Yeah. So that description of self-care and this type of wellness as political warfare is very different from yeah. like our modern, like I feel like our the modern stresses are not <laughs> engaging in political warfare. <laughs> yeah. Also on a side note, we uh, had an episode like a year ago called the self-care industrial complex. So if you like this one, you haven't listened to that one, that would be a good one. To we really crack up about, <laughs> about a lot of goop products there. Yeah. The goop stresses really, really are at it again. Yeah. But nobody is, you know, buying a yoni egg with the intention of, with revolutionary intent. <laughs> you know that you don't know if the rioters at the capitol had yoni's eggs you're right you're right (laughs) that would be like the weirdest crossover ever if they were like actually what enabled us to climb the walls of the capitals that we richard my yoni egg fell out (laughs) on the senate floor (laughs) my yoni egg sitting in nancy pelosi's office (laughs) vabbing onto nancy pelosi's desk (laughs) okay moving on anyway you read a whole book about wellness yeah i did (laughs) so let's get to your book okay great so the book that i read is who is wellness for by fariha rasheen and uh obviously it's a huge book and it's part memoir and it's part um like an investigation into wellness culture what that means in the u.s and also like its foundations in you know she, she talks specifically in india but a lot of it she talks about how colonization affected what we see as wellness today right. and like how much decolonization took because i think when we when most of us think of decolonization we think of like the instability of countries we think of the term like third world countries but we don't actually think of like the like spiritual taking um and so she talks a lot about that and i really am only going to talk about the small section of the book so i highly recommend that you read the book if you're interested in this kind of thing but i think the way that she talks about meditation sets up the way that she talks about the rest of the things in the book um and she talks about meditation um more as like an act um more than an act or a ritual but like a state of being right and so like that's kind of what you don't see in like the head specification of meditation you know it's like well this is the thing that you do for five minutes every day and then it makes you like it clears your head before work right it helps you go fire a bunch of people at your corporate office (laughs) exactly i love how they literally have like if you've ever been on headspace they have like different meditations and like some of them are like difficult conversations i'm like is that the one you listen to before you fire somebody to just ground yourself in the love of the buddha yeah it's like guys i know this is gonna be really really tough but i just did a meditation on how to talk to you about this so i'm set up for success (laughs) um but yeah she was like meditation in the west basically is like a catch-all phrase like to her and um like the roots of meditation it's what you were talking about like it's a it's an approach to like psychic well-being that requires like consistent upkeep like it's very grueling sometimes work i mean yeah the buddha literally like starved yeah right for like days and days under the bodhi tree and like literally like was miserable and like getting rained on and like almost died of hypothermia like that's right. where it, it comes from suffering and the westernized version is like do a five minute meditation one time or like read this little book and learn like 50 ways to meditate yeah um like it's looking for shortcuts basically the westernized way and so she several times throughout the chapter asks like if you meditate like why do you meditate and if you meditate do you know where that comes from and if you don't why have you never bothered to ask the question right like if we're meditate like meditating literally means like it's from like the latin word and it means to ponder like pondering what like on what you know right. why are you like engaging in this practice if you have like no idea where it comes from and um there's one she quotes an academic and this quote is people talk about decolonizing knowledge one way to decolonize it is to return to the historical roots so 
like the western world is very interested in like separating this idea of like spiritual like or wellness like from science like two different things of like you know you take care of your spirit and then there's like things that are actually like logical and true and uh foundational but like that's like in many cultures the two are intertwined like the whole idea of like spiritual wellness is very intertwined with the science like for example like in the muslim world is like as invested in science as much as it is in like astrology and health and protection of the body and like you know the muslim world in their uh contributions to science is like where you know the western world gets a lot of it from right and then she talks about colonization resulting directly in the loss of health with like not only the poverty but with like the taking of spiritual knowledge Uh and with like you know that that theft of knowledge so for meditation specifically it was first encountered in the indus valley via wall art dating from approximately 5000 to 35000 bce and then descriptions of meditative techniques are found in like Indian scriptures dating back to around 3000 years. So like the written evidence was first seen in the Vedas, which is this large body of, of religious texts. Um, and she also talks about like these overlooked components of meditation and surfacing in India. Like I think when we think of meditation and I think, you know, in the Western world um, is what I mean by that. Like even well-meaning people are like, wow, it's just like the Eastern religion really knows how to do it. Like the and, West, like, nobody like, we're ever all- <laughs> has wars there as right. if like Buddhists haven't also fought wars over religion. Like- right. Or it's like everything, you know, it's just like this over romanticizing that like totally all- equally as as the people that don't know that, you know, meditation is not a Western idea. Like like equally um do they like are they removed from the true history of it so she's talking about how like meditation and most forms of spiritual enlightenment um in india were governed by the caste system Mm. so like it was a requirement for people who identified as brahmins which are like you know priests and spiritual teachers um to meditate but it excluded lower caste people frequently because they were seen as unable to have the same access to god right and brahmin is the highest caste in right yeah the indian caste system yeah and but buddhism this like and and the buddha's idea of nirvana which is like a state that you acquire through like focus and detail and like precision of the mind through meditative practice like you know you're supposed to eventually reach nirvana like that concept is is introduced to all like the buddha was openly very anti-caste um and yeah well because the caste system much like you know the construction of like our racial system like sees like it's this idea that there are like biological like separations between human beings that there are certain ways that human beings are innately different and like the idea of buddhism and the idea of the buddha is that that's not true yeah that everybody has the buddha seed inside them right like these were all what he called conventional classifications rather than biological facts and so that wasn't like congruent with that um and it's interesting too when you think about like and I didn't know a ton of this history either and I think especially in the U.S. we are not taught other countries histories and I think a lot of other countries are taught the history of the U.S. and I think one thing that I've been trying to like purposefully do uh, in the last at least year or two is just really try to invest myself into learning about other countries history because I'm realizing what a gap in my knowledge it was um but before the British occupation, India was like a very culturally and economically prosperous civilization that had been around for like millennia. Like, That's why England went there because they right. had all the teas and spices and their <laughs> food tasted like shit and they didn't have any tea. Yeah. And now the whole thing of England is tea. Where right. did you get it from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, Buddha was born 600 years before Jesus. Like India has been there. He's Yeah, they've been there. <laughs> um, and it's also like, you know, it's home to the oldest university in the world. It like founded our numerical system and has produced countless thinkers, philosophers, poets, and scientists. Like, you know, people, you know, have this. And I can't like, 
people who just grow up spit out into the American education system are not entirely blameless because the American education system does not do a good job of interrogating colonialism, obviously. But people have this idea that like, oh, third world countries are countries where like people were too stupid to make a good government. And like, that's why they're impoverished and that's why they're out of money. And like, they're unfortunately desolate. And like, the reason why we have a bunch of money is because we had all the smart people here who made a good government. If you look at the history of the world, there was a really interesting book that I read for my history of capitalism class that I took freshman year um, of college. And it was all about how like China was the most economically successful, like biggest powerhouse in the world for centuries and centuries and centuries. And like, it's just a weird blip in time that America is this important. Like so many other countries and like empires have been so much more influential and powerful and like contributed so much in history. And it just happens to be that in this moment, America thinks that it's better than like every other country. That and like the reason why it has hoarded all of the wealth and the resources is because it's literally hoarded them. Like it's actually stolen from yeah. like all the other countries. Like it's not just an accident that America is like, you know, just the the top of the food chain right now and that other people like are fallen below. Like it it is designed that way. Like the only reason America is up there is because other people in other countries are not. Um, like there's this uh, theory called the drain theory, which essentially is that like the British occupation drained India of resources and changed its sa- its status from previously like a strong leading civilization to like yeah. now like a lot of India is like really impoverished and like th- this is a crazy. Statistic, I mean, India is also a massive country. Right, it's huge. India and China are the biggest countries in the world yeah. with like billions of people in them. Right, like they're much bigger than America as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this was crazy that I learned Britain drained 40 million pounds per colonized year and estimated now to be nearly wow. 724 million euros. So like, like this whole process is designed to create third world countries. Like she has this quote, if every colonizing nation were to pay back its reparations, the entire Western world would collapse. Of course. And it's also like, if you go into a country and colonize it, then the implication is that these people don't know how to govern themselves. Yeah. So like their government is weaker than ours. And it's also more of like an existential decision of like, who gets to have a good life? Who gets to be well? Right. Like, you know, all of the things that we enjoy as like facets of our relatively comfortable, you know, American life that comes at the expense of other people like it's not a zero-sum game like this is happening because other people are suffering we can go out and buy whatever type of clothes we want we want if we have the money for it because other people are suffering to make them of course like, that's how it works the design is to make people unwell like through poverty and through a theft of knowledge and so she's talking about the decolonization of knowledge and this quote says the urge for white people to commodify to steal through a decontextualization of where certain practices comes from assuming that everything can be owned is transparent to those who are actively decolonizing and that's a very capitalist thing to do like to remove it from the original source to decontextualize it to take whatever like to literally like neuter the knowledge right out of it to make anything like profitable or palatable yeah like how can we americanize this as quickly as possible right exactly and there's also um she brings up this concept of policing the imagination um which is a a concept by sadia hartman from her essay scenes of subjection and that's very similar to capitalist realism it's like this idea you know capitalist realism i think we've talked about before how it's this idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world before the end of capitalism right like something that happens when you just remove the spiritual practices from their origins is that like you stop seeing like the 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 through line of all these things like if meditation becomes the thing that you do alone in your office for 10 minutes like you stop seeing the vision in which you know people meditate together and in groups and that it's a way to like enrich your community 
Um, and you're also denying yourself a lot by not contextualizing these practices. Like for me, learning about meditation always seemed like how would that help me at all? And it was only once I started learning about Buddhism and reading the Buddhist text that I was like, oh, it makes sense why this is helpful and why right. this is you know useful to people. If you take it out of its context, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, exactly. And this all is a part of um, this term called epistemicide, which is you know basically the destruction of knowledge, which yeah. has been happening forever and forever and forever. And she lists like a few huge events that were epistemicides which is like the expulsion of the muslims and jews from europe period that's one huge one the conquest of like the indigenous people of the americas obviously the whole transatlantic slave trade and like the salem witch trials was like another thing she brought up like these are all like the epistemicide is a huge um like layer to colonization like the destruction of knowledge is huge like there's a reason why they didn't want um enslaved people to read right you know they wanted to take that away from them and like that is a side of colonization that is like really deeply entrenched into it it's like yes it is like in incredible violence yes it is incredible like poverty and resource draining but it's also this like literally taking of the knowledge like when white people are like i just don't understand like let people do whatever they want with their hair and like let people let white people wear dreads and let people like that is entrenched in so much more that it's not just a hairstyle like right. it is like literally the knowledge and the culture and like the fabric of somebody else's society that like yeah. the western world has just like whoosh, like ripped out from under them and i was talking about this in my psych class actually we watched this um I think it's called The Color of Fear. It was like this doc documentary about this like group therapy session. And this black man was speaking and he was talking about like how angry he is about like the state of America and how much America like crushes people's spirits and their mm -hmm. cultures. And he was like, any of you in this room that are white who are proud of your American culture, like that's not a culture. You had to have your culture ripped from you right. in order to have American culture. So like anybody who says that they're proud of American culture, like in order to be successful in America, you have to be ripped of your culture. You have to mm. attend to white people you have to like you know get rid of your language you have to get rid of your foods like anything that makes you different like it's a requirement yeah maybe america's the land of the free but only if once you abandon all your culture and like yeah. assimilate completely yeah no that's so true and like that's also you know the development really of meditation coming from you know a communal practice to an individual one like she has this quote the act of micro healing of healing oneself which i really like that i like mm. that term of like working on yourself and healing yourself as micro healing must also be seen in the context of macro healing or healing of the community definitely and she talks specifically about mindfulness in the u.s and like how that's been you know co-opted and and branded and just some crazy stats which is that like headspace's revenue is estimated at 50 million dollars per year and the company itself is valued at like 250 million dollars yeah um and there's this term called mcmindfulness which is coined oh, by the Jesus. guardian and it you know basically instead of letting go of the ego mcmindfulness promotes self-aggrandizement um which is like the whole point of buddhism is like letting go of the ego right exactly <laughs> well and it's interesting too because sometimes when i describe mindfulness or when i describe you know meditation uh or like some aspects of buddhist thought to people they're like well isn't that just being complacent like when you just like what do you mean you're allowing things to be the way that they are like isn't that just being complacent and it really like that's what i was thinking of too when she introduces this um quote by bhikkhu bodhi which is a western buddhist monk and he says absent a sharp social critique buddhist practices could easily be used to justify and stabilize the status quo becoming a reinforcement of consumer capitalism just that like you know to see meditation once again in like the westernized way of like a way to optimize the self and a way to like f you know fuel the ego um really separates it from exactly what this author is talking about and again she asked this question if you meditate why do you do it 
Um, and this like, I mean, it really is true that a lot of, I feel like, especially in LA, we like are constantly seeing people who are like, I like, I'm a meditation teacher. I'm like a yoga teacher. And it's like the worst person, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's seen as like to involve politics in like my spirituality or my meditation. Like that's just unnecessary. Which is so false. Like I think that spirituality has to be an integral part of politics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my political views are based almost entirely in my spirituality. Like my belief that I think that we all come like from the same eternal source and that fundamentally we are not different beings. Like, that's what makes me think that we should all have like healthcare. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that there's and no, that there like, shouldn't be like caste systems <laughs> right. in America either. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But I like mean, a- if people actually listen to what Jesus said, he was like, do not turn your way, your like mind away from the lepers. Like he was right. like, accept everybody in the yeah. world and they were like we're gonna pass on that part of it actually right exactly but a lot of people see meditation as like a self-transformation journey and it's like don't get everybody else and mixed up in my self-transformation journey i mean to become the most enlightened in buddhism to become a bodhisattva is to like help others become enlightened right like the ultimate goal of enlightenment in buddhism is not like you personally ascend it's like if you are like truly walking the path then your journey is helping others to realize their own buddha nature and become enlightened Right, exactly. And I want to close out with this um, quote that actually is almost a little bit hopeful. Um, Love. <laughs> but it reminded me of like your Darwinian quote um, or your Darwinian reference earlier. Um, and it's from uh, this book called Sacred Econ- Economics by Charles Einstein. And it says, in nature, headlong growth and all out competition are features of immature ecosystems, followed by complex interdependence, symbiosis, cooperation and the cycling of resources. Mm. And I think we are absolutely in the phase of an immature ecosystem in which we are heavily competing and we are enacting violence against one another around resources that are not all limited. And hopefully, eventually, we will reemerge into <laughs> a time where we are cycling resources and we're, where we are engaging in symbiosis. That would be great. Would I love would love that. that. But you know what, guys? Like, honestly... Even our little community of Binchtopia, like our Discord that's always running, which I don't even like check up on, but like people really are like yeah, in the Discord, in which it. I love. Like mm-hmm. we have all, I feel like COVID has shown us that like we will, humans will try to find community in whatever way that we can. Yeah. And like if you're suffering alone and you're like, why is it so hard for me to be alone? Why is it so hard for me to meditate alone? Why is it so hard for me to like heal when I just talk to my therapist? Why is it so hard for me to heal when I'm like, you know, just in my room all day? Like, because we're not meant to be alone. Like I've, yeah. I've really been learning in my group therapy class, like the reason why group therapy is so effective with like trauma survivors and like people have been, who have been going through grief, like because other people feel seen, they know they're not the only ones to yeah. hear other people talk about their experiences and share in that. And I've talked so much about how I, I think the American focus on individualism is all about like, no, my trauma is the most severe. My trauma is the most severe. And I'm the only one who's ever experienced this feeling and nobody else will ever get it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, great. That makes you feel good for a little bit. But like, you're actually denying yourself the experience of that. Like, everyone has felt the way that you have felt at one point like whatever feeling you're feeling there are millions of people in the world that are feeling it at the same time as you and to like uh, to to feel like you're the only one who's feeling that way will only make you feel more isolated even if it makes you feel like well i'm special because i like have this thing the easiest way to suffer is to be the exception it really is that's a line i just wrote in a song (laughs) really yeah (laughs) wow love yeah yeah sneak preview for lp1 everybody we love it (laughs) should we thank our godly wives yes also guys we've recorded three podcast episodes this week so like we've really been going at please clap please clap okay thank you so much to our godly wives 
Thank you to Nicole Pearl, Ruth Curry, Rhiannon Ellis, Liliana Grassi, Madison Greer, Summer, Layla Elgasov, Hannah James, Caledonia Strillo, Mary Blodgett, Claire Carter, Hannah Wagner, Jessica Williams, Alsa Osborne, Madison Chamberlain, Mackenzie Brown, Jasmine Savoy, Hazel Fleck, Casey Johnston, Katie, Anna Baboni, Jada, Roaha Muhammad, and Mariella Canales. Thank you. Thank you. We love you.